don't know about you, but increasingly, I see a war for the global south going on here. You know, the first press release I saw that came out of the Xi Jinping-Vladimir Putin summit, I think we could call it a summit, state visit. This is from TASS, the Russian news agency. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast, everyone. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Picking up where we left off last week and, you know, this whole global south versus the west. You have Anthony Blinken traveling to Niger. Kind of interesting. There he is 20 years after the Iraq war. I mean, you might remember. Don't forget, it was Niger where the yellow cake uranium was supposed to come from for the Iraq war. Remember that? It was Niger. And that was debunked. What was the name of the, was it Joe Wilson, who apparently has passed away now? This was all debunked, right? And that was a crucial, as we all know now, a crucial argument for the Iraq war was this yellow cake uranium coming out of Niger. And now Blinken, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, is, I believe, I'm not sure if he's in Niger, he's visiting Niger, and he's also going to Ethiopia where apparently relations are not very good. I was listening to a Africa Today podcast. You know, Africa is maybe the most interesting place right now to pay attention to. It seems to be the main audience, as I say here, for the this war for the global south. I mean, you have Blinken going to Niger, Ethiopia, then meeting back in Washington with the Moroccan foreign minister. Then you have Kamala Harris is also traveling for the final week in March to Africa, and we're going to list all the countries there. So welcome again. This is our quarterly Around the World in 60 Minutes episode, and there is just a ton going on. So back to this statement, which to me reads this uh, Russian news agency press release, China ready to uphold UN-centric international system together with Russia. This to me, seems like it's designed specifically for the Global South. And we have a paragraph from Xi, but let's just read the intro paragraph. Again, we don't need to believe this stuff. But just to hear what people are saying, China, together with Russia, is determined to uphold the UN-centric international system in today's troubled world and to safeguard a world order based on international law, Chinese President Xi Jinping said upon his arrival in Moscow on Monday. Now, I'm sure somewhere in the West this is reported, but I'm telling you, I did some searches and it's just kind of hard to find, okay? I'm sure it's out there, probably something on CNBC, but here's the quote from President Xi. In a troubled world, China is ready to act in concert with Russia to firmly uphold the UN-centric international system, safeguard the world order based on international law, and the fundamental norms of international relations relying on the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, support true multilateralism, promote multipolarity in the world. And this is quite something to me for a Chinese Communist Party leader to say, democratize international relations and promote global governance on a more just and rational track. So, This is quite interesting that they are really, really backing the UN. 
And in so doing, from purely a PR perspective, it makes the U.S. look like they're not following the U.N., doesn't it? I mean, by Russia and China, you know, so firmly and so resolutely backing the U.N. and almost, frankly, sounding like they're, they want a safeguard, as they put it here, to safeguard a world order based on international law. So they are out there saying we are all about the U.N. and upholding the charter. So this is quite interesting. And again, to me, that tells me that this is partly designed not for the West so much, but for the global South to consume. There is a war, a PR war for the global South. And again, you see Blinken, you see Kamala Harris, you know, going from country to country in Africa, you know, shoring up, you know, support. And you listen to these podcasts. I think it was Africa Today. I believe that's what it's called. Very fascinating. I highly recommend, you know, look for Africa News. That's not the BBC because this is another irony. And we're getting to resources, which are, again, at the center of the mandala here. But it's quite interesting to actually hear news about the African continent from, you know, not the BBC, from non-Western perspective. And what you'll hear is a lot of skepticism towards the West and that ultimately their interest in us is all about resources. A lot has been lost in the last 20 years. The West has lost a lot of credibility from what I gather in the last 20 years here. First with the Iraq war, and now there is a real battle here for, you know, the hearts and minds of the global South. And it'll be interesting to see. And I have a few stories here. We have a pipeline story, which is fascinating. One that we touched on, I think, three months ago when we did Around the World in 60 Minutes, this oil pipeline that Uganda and Tanzania are working on. And wait till you hear what they say about the European Union Parliament. Something like, go to HE double hockey stick. We will go into that. Okay, so I'm not sure that the West, which is in its own echo chamber, is really, you know, maybe they're listening to BBC World Africa and not like these podcasts that I'm finding. It is quite interesting. So Africa, super interesting. And again, there's Blinken going to Niger. And when you hear the commentators that I was listening to, it's like, yeah, we think they want uranium. We think they want uh, resources. So that was very interesting. So we're going to get into all that here. And I mean, we haven't even touched on gold, which pierced $2,000 an ounce on this whole banking crisis. Meanwhile, you know, and like Putin said very early on, like maybe two or three months into the invasion, that this was the plan. That really this house of cards in the West, this financial system needs to be taken down. As I was referencing to, you know, Samuel Johnson, refuting George Berkeley, like I refute it thus, kicks the rock. Right? This world of ideas, this world of hyper financialization. I refute it thus. So, when you look at what's happening in the West now, 
there is a sense. Like, I mean, it's a little, you know, we practically have bank runs going on in regional banks in the U.S. because there's a sense, you know, that you're not going to get your money, right? And basically, from what I understand, it's a sounds like a pretty serious problem because are you going to backstop the entire banking system? Sounds like they're going to, frankly. So gold has been going up. Now, there is a lot of skepticism out here. Bitcoin has also been going up. There is a lot of skepticism from interesting technical people like Tom McClelland and Gareth Soloway. And sentiment is really positive for Bitcoin right now. It's pretty positive for gold, which would suggest that it is a contrary indicator and that they may take a break and pull back should one want to take a contrarian view. So anyways, we're going to look at all of these super interesting stories here because, again, you might say, well, I thought this was a mining podcast. What does this have to do with Russia and China? And the answer is everything. It is everything, ladies and gentlemen, and we are going to take you through that journey here today. So welcome to the podcast, and we'd also like to thank Tom Paragudoff, President and CEO of Apollo Silver, for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. And we're also going to look at metal prices, and then we're going to go into an extended look at the news as we travel around the world in 60 minutes. Welcome, everyone. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. And on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Tom Paragudoff, President and CEO of Apollo Silver, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome Tom Paragudoff, President and CEO of Apollo Silver, to this week's CEO Spotlight. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Adrian. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And silver is such an interesting subject, and it's one of the favorite themes of investors out there. Tell us about Apollo Silver. What are you up to? What are your projects? What's exciting? Sure. Well, look at you know Apollo Silver Corp. We're TSX listed. We were formed back in July of 21 with the purchase of the Waterloo asset off of Pan American Silver. And on the back of that, we raised 53 million Canadian and we spent the uh, 2022 proving up our resource at Calico. And we announced on Monday 110 million ounces of silver in measured and indicated, uh, 90 million of that in uh, measured category. So very excited about that. That makes our Waterloo property and, and our Calico project one of the uh, largest undeveloped silver resources in, in the U.S. Okay, it sounds pretty impressive. So just to clarify then, so Waterloo and Calico, are they side by side or is one inside the other? Sure, what are their sure. relationship? Yeah, sure. So so the Calico project is the broad term we use. We have two resources within that project. One is the Waterloo property, which is contains, as I said, 110 million ounces in measured and indicated, as well as about 70,000 ounces gold in inferred. The uh, neighboring property is the Langtree property. There's also an additional 50 million ounces of silver uh, inferred on that property. And we're the first group to ever own both properties. They've always been in uh, separate hands. And 
we were able to consolidate those two land packages back, as I said, in 2021. Okay, excellent. That helps a lot. So the project is in California. So how has that been? I mean, a lot of people have preconceptions about California as a place to work, Absolutely. Uh, in particularly in regards to mining. So how's it been for you and how do you find it? You know, I can tell you that uh, before we got involved, obviously, that was one of the first things that sprung to my mind. Uh, when this opportunity came up is, can you get a mine built in California these days? And I think the short answer is yes, you can. But there's a couple of things you've got to be careful about. I think, number one, you need to be in the right county. We're in San Bernardino County. San Bernardino, for those who don't know, provide all of the construction materials, or at least the vast majority of construction materials, aggregate and limestone for concrete, for the Southern California construction industry. So as a jurisdiction, they understand the importance of resource development. That's, I think, the first thing to note. And I think the second thing to note is if you look more broadly at the county, you you can see other operations are already there. Mountain Pass, which is a rare earth, was recently permitted uh, and is now through construction and commissioning and is fully operational. Castle Mountain is uh, operating gold mine, which is operated by Equinox also located in uh, San Bernardino County. And then I would just close by saying, Adrian, I got my drill permits in six weeks time from application. And if there's anything that kind of shows how workable I'm finding California, I think that shows it. I don't know any other jurisdiction that uh, you can get a drill permit in six weeks time from application anymore. It is unheard of to get a drill permit in six weeks. That is incredible. Okay, so you're doing well then. And so as far as then your roadmap, then you have your permits. Are you drilling? Do you need more permits? Where are you basically then in your trajectory? Sure. So look at, you know, obviously with the resource declaration, we're very confident in that resource declaration. Stantec did the work for us. So that M&I resource of 110 million ounces is very solid. So for us, you know, it's drilled out other than the gold, which, um, as I said, we can we, we're looking to expand. But the silver resource itself is 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 well understood. So moving forward, we're going to begin uh, the geotech drilling. We'll do some advanced metallurgical work to try and optimize that and get into engineering studies. So I think from an investor's perspective for this year, we'll, as I said, we'll be looking to expand our gold so that we'll get some news flow out of that drilling work and then, you know, look for engineering studies and the outcomes of some of those to start coming. Okay, excellent. How is the community over there? I think you mentioned that you're on private land. Is that right? And how is working in that area in San Bernardino? Tell us about that. Sure. We're about 15 kilometers outside of Barstow, California, uh, in the high desert. That's the largest center for us. I can say that, you know, so far the communities in the consultation meetings that we hold and updates are very open. Again, they're they're familiar with the benefits of resource development in that part of the world. I think importantly, we've done a uh, biological constraint study and it hasn't flagged any issues. There's no Joshua trees, for example. It's a fairly desolate part of uh, the California desert. I think as well, obviously, importantly, First Nations are important and we've consulted with the San Manuel Mission Indians and the Morongo Mission Indians and the feedback from those groups has been as well positive and supportive. They haven't raised any issues or any particular sensitivities about our location. So 
I think, you know, from a, a community perspective and from a, a, an ESG perspective, it doesn't get a lot better in my experience than what we're, we're seeing at, uh, at Calico. Well, you know, timing is everything. And I get the sense that there's never been more excitement to develop projects in North America. So tell us, as we sort of wrap up here, what is your message to investors? What do you want them to know? What is the great opportunity with Apollo Silver? Look, I think that the big opportunity for us and Calico really is to become a, a silver producer in a tier one country. And this gives, you know, investors tremendous leverage to silver and the forecast uptick in demand and, and the potential impact that's going to have on, on silver prices moving forward and doing it in a jurisdiction that has made some very, very firm commitments to the decarbonization of their uh, energy infrastructure, California specifically and much more broadly in the U.S. And I can't think of a, a better positioned pure silver play than Calico. Yeah, I mean, silver, the beautiful thing about it from that perspective is silver, I don't know if it's called a critical material. Like, is it listed as a critical material? Because you'd almost think it was, considering its use, say, in solar panels and just in, yeah. in tech in general. No, Adrian, it isn't uh, listed as a critical mineral, but bear in mind, neither is copper. We all know, <laughs> yeah, we okay. all know how, probably how important yeah. both of those uh, materials are going to be moving forward. Okay, excellent. Well, Tom Perigudoff, President and CEO of Apollo Silver, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thanks again, Adrian. I look forward to speaking again soon. Bye-bye. And we'd like to thank Tom Paragudoff and Apollo Silver for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast and turning to metal prices. First, let's just take a look at the 10-year bond. And it was quite a week there. It is at 3.566%, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond. And that is 0.07% lower than last week, but it was a volatile week as it went as high. Let's just take a look here. We look at the last five trading days. It went as high as 3.6, close to where it is now, all the way down to 3.37. So 0.2 percentage points. A lot of quick moves, and all probably as a result of this. Well, it seems to be a little bit of a banking crisis. And turning to metals, gold is trading at $1,943.76 per ounce. That is $37 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.20 per ounce. That is $0.27 cents higher than last week. And platinum is trading at $961.01 per ounce. That is $27 lower than last week, and palladium is at $1,386.82 per ounce. That is $123 lower than last week. And, I mean, you don't need to go back that far, maybe three or four months, when we had $2,000 palladium. It is now at $1,386. So, interesting move there. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.01 per pound, that is two cents lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $128.50 per ton. That is $4.50 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading two cents lower at $1.04 per pound. Lead is trading a penny higher 
at 95 cents per pound. And nickel is also trading higher at $10.50 per pound. That is 30 cents higher than last week. And tin is trading at $10.21 per pound. That is 18 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.50 per pound. Lithium is trading $4 lower at $44.69 per kilogram. And zinc is trading at $1.30 per pound. That is three cents lower than last week. So zooming out, what do we see is gold and silver higher, palladium significantly lower, maybe by 8%. And trading at numbers, we really haven't seen. I don't know if we've ever seen them on this podcast. I mean, I'm going back three years here since I've been tracking the palladium price, I haven't seen it at 1386 It looks like, you know, maybe the $1,600 level, just looking at all of these numbers that we have tracked here, I guess in the last few weeks are the lowest numbers we've seen with 1432 about, you know, three weeks ago. So now at 1386 palladium in a definite downtrend and industrial metals really stay steady with nickel maybe being the outlier up 30 cents. And those are your metal prices. And turning to the website and beyond, with our special quarterly Around the World in 60 Minutes. So let's start with a couple of pipeline stories here. Russia says pipeline to China will replace Nord Stream 2. This is AFP. A Russian pipeline to China will replace the Nord Stream 2 gas link to Europe. Abandoned amid the Ukraine conflict, Moscow's energy minister Alexander Novak said Thursday. Asked in an interview with Russian television channel Rosia 1 if Russia would replace the European Nord Stream 2 with the Asian force Siberia 2, Novak said yes. Earlier in the day, the minister on the sidelines of a visit to Uzbekistan said Russia and China would soon sign agreements on the delivery of, quote, 15 billion cubic meters of gas, end quote, per year via the Future Force 2 pipeline in Siberia. The volume will almost represent the maximum capacity of Nord Stream 1, 55 billion cubic meters in total, which has been shut down since September 2nd. A third of Russian gas supplies to the European Union had passed through the strategic pipeline, which links Russia to Germany. For Siberia, too, will fuel China's energy-guzzling economy, partly via Mongolia. Construction is due to start in 2024. It will therefore replace the Nord Stream 2 project, long backed by Germany, but which Washington viewed dimly and which the West has scrapped since the Russian offensive in Ukraine began in late February. Russian gas exports to the EU will, quote, drop by around 50 billion cubic meters in 2022, Novik said. At the same time, the Russian minister said that Gazprom, operator of the Force of Siberia 1 gas pipeline that has linked the Kyandina field to northeastern China, since the end of 2019, would, quote, increase its deliveries, end quote, to reach, quote, 20 billion cubic meters of gas each year. So, so far, it seems like basically European demand is going to get replaced by Chinese demand. The linking of the Kovitka field near Lake Baikal to the pipeline in early 2023 will help achieve the increase. 
By 2025, when it reaches its maximum capacity, the pipeline will produce 61 billion cubic meters of gas per year, more than Nord Stream 1, of which 38 billion cubic meters will go to China under a 2014 contract signed between Gazprom and its Chinese counterpart CNPC. Finally, the two sides also signed agreements to build a new transit route from Vladivostok in Russia's Far East to northern China, bringing in an additional 10 billion cubic meters of gas, the energy ministry said Thursday. So Xi Jinping and Putin are really marrying these two countries up in terms of energy. Now, another really interesting pipeline story. Wait till you hear this. I was referencing it in the introduction. So this is courtesy of a website I've never heard of, LifeGate, but it sounded like a pretty credible article, and it was in Google News. Uganda and Tanzania approve EACOP oil pipeline despite environmental concerns. This is by Mike Menda on March 9th. The governments of Uganda and Tanzania have officially approved the construction of the $5 billion East Africa crude oil pipeline, ECOP, project, which is set to cover a distance of 1,443 kilometers. Uganda discovered commercial reserves of petroleum nearly two decades ago in one of the world's most biodiverse regions, but production has been repeatedly delayed by a lack of infrastructure like a pipeline. Although the Ugandan authorities see the oil project as a major economic development, some environmentalists disagree, saying the fossil resources will lead to corruption and poverty. Ugandan President Yaweri Museveni recently lambasted the West over what he calls a, quote, mockery, end quote, of Western commitments to climate targets and their promises to help boost African development. Recently, the European Union Parliament urged the international community to exert, quote, maximum pressure, end quote, on Ugandan and Tanzanian authorities, as well as the project promoters and stakeholders, quote, to protect the environment and to put an end to the extractive activities in protective and sensitive ecosystems, including the shores of Lake Albert, end quote. And we have a quote from Museveni, who is, again, the president of Uganda, quote, out of the four oil fields, we started with smaller companies and subsequently got big firms like China National Offshore Oil Corporation, CNOOC, and Total Energies, I particularly thank CNOOC because they are moving, and I hope others are also moving. I want to thank the Chinese government for encouraging their company to come and invest here. We have been working with them since the 1950s in liberating our people, and now we are in economic cooperation for mutual benefit. I also thank the government of France because I have not heard them making trouble, apart from the European Parliament, which I told to go to hell. End quote said Museveni. So as far as this battle for the global south, it sounds like Uganda has picked its side. So continuing on, China doubles imports of Russian aluminum shunned by West. And this is Bloomberg News. And just a headline here. And this follows the U.S. imposing a 200% tariff on imports of Russian-made metal. So we saw it just to put the pieces of the puzzle together that we're slowly accumulating here. So Europe doesn't want the gas, China will take it. America doesn't want Russian aluminum, China will take it. That is what we have figured out so far here. Chinese purchases have surged to record in wake of invasion. U.S. has imposed 200% tariff on imports of Russian-made metal. 
So imports of refined aluminum from Russia surged 94% between March 2022 and February 2023. Continuing on, so Anthony Blinken is on a rare Niger trip as Western support dwindles in West Africa. And this is also by AFP. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken headed Thursday on a rare trip to Niger, an outpost of Western support and democratic successes in West Africa as Russia makes inroads. Blinken will be the first top U.S. diplomat ever to visit the former French colony, a key military base for Western forces to battle jihadists in the troubled Sahel region. And the date on this was March 16th. He's expected to announce more U.S. support to Niger, one of the world's poorest countries. Speaking Wednesday on a visit to Ethiopia, Blinken said his trip to the two countries was part of President Joe Biden's pledge to be, quote, all in on Africa and all in with Africa, end quote. And he also said, quote, that means the United States is committed to deep, responsive, and genuine partnerships on the continent, end quote, Blinken told reporters. The Biden administration launched its bid for greater engagement in Africa in the face of rising investment by China, seen as the top rising challenger to the United States, but concerns have grown more recently about Russia. Niger's western neighbor Mali has shifted decisively into Russia's orbit, hiring the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group after French troops withdrew following a nine-year military operation that prevented a takeover by jihadists but became increasingly unpopular after successive coups. Mali last month was one of just six countries that joined Russia in voting against a resolution at the United Nations General Assembly urging Moscow to withdraw from Ukraine on the invasion's anniversary. Burkina Faso has also fallen out with France, although both the country's military leader and Russia have denied repeated assertions that Wagner is operating there. Niger has since become the linchpin for French military efforts in West Africa, with 1,000 troops stationed there. The United States also built and operates so-called Airbase 201 in the center of the desert country that is used to fly drones for attacks and surveillance on jihadists. And we have another story here. This is France 24. Blinken arrives in Ethiopia as part of bid to boost U.S. engagement in Africa. So he is in Ethiopia. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken arrived late Tuesday in Ethiopia on a bid to support the peace process after a brutal two-year civil war and renew ties with a longtime ally. Again, listening to a couple of podcasts there out of uh, basically an Africa Today type podcast, it sounds like relationships between Ethiopia and America are at an all-time low. Blinken's trip to Africa's second most populous nation comes as part of a push by President Joe Biden's administration to set up engagement with Africa, where China and Russia have been stepping up influence. It is the highest ranking U.S. visit to the country since war broke out in late 2020 between Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan rebels fraying the U.S. relationship with Addis Ababa as Washington alleged crimes against humanity. Blinken is expected to meet Wednesday in Addis Ababa, with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, a Nobel Prize winner once seen as the vanguard of a new generation of forward-looking African leaders, but who quickly turned into a near pariah for Washington over the war. And then scrolling down the article, Russia has gone on a diplomatic offensive in Africa, including in Ethiopia, since the war, hopeful that the continent will stay neutral rather than join Western sanctions. So you see this battle for the global south. Russia's efforts 
follow years of inroads in Africa by China, which similarly has offered relationships with Africa that are openly transactional and free from Western pressure on human rights. Soon after Blinken's visit, his third to sub-Saharan Africa, Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia, three countries seen as committed to making progress on democracy. Now, there is also this story that came from Fox News via Yahoo News. Blinken travels to Africa as new report shows China-Russia eclipsing U.S. arms sales to the continent. So it's right there on the surface. This is by Caitlin McFall. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Tuesday will travel to Ethiopia and then Niger later in the week as the Biden administration looks to bolster relations with African partners to counter top adversaries like China and Russia from expanding ties on the continent. The Biden administration has been working to revitalize relations with nations across Africa as one of its top geopolitical objectives, and Blinken will not be the only diplomat hitting the continent this week. Under Secretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, Uzra Zaya will travel to Gambia and Senegal, while Lee Satterfield, Assistant Secretary of State for Education and Cultural Affairs, will hit South Africa this week. Quote, you'll be seeing this as a year of travel of U.S. officials to Africa, end quote. Assistant Secretary for African Affairs Molly Fee told reporters last week, we've already seen the First Lady and the Treasury Secretary as well as Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield on the continent and expect to see more leaders of the administration visiting to deepen and expand our partnerships. And here we come to our bread and butter, ladies and gentlemen. Don't worry, we are coming to natural resources, and this is continuing in the Fox News article. As we set the table here for you, a report released earlier this month showed that not only are China and Russia expanding more when it comes to trade, infrastructure development, and natural resources across the continent but in arms sales as well. The trip comes as news continues to emerge on both China and Russia's growing ties with nations in Africa as they face increasing opposition from the West. Together, Russia and China make up nearly half of all arms sales to sub-Saharan Africa, with a combined total of 46% of the region's arms deals over the last decade. Between 2010 and 2021, Russia contributed 24% to arms exports to sub-Saharan Africa, while China provided 22% of the region's arms, far outstripping the U.S.'s 5%, according to data released by the Atlantic Council earlier this month. So it's pretty complicated out there, isn't it? And they link to a story here, also on Fox News, China beating Tesla, U.S. in African lithium rush. U.S. struggles to compete with China's growing investment in Africa as demand for lithium spikes. So this was from February 23rd. China has beat out Tesla in a bid to mine for lithium in Nigeria as top nations like the U.S. and leaders across Europe race to go electric amid growing climate change concerns. But China has stepped up its involvement in the electric game, not necessarily over environmental concerns, but because lithium production, of which China controls a whopping 60% of the world's battery-grade refining capacity, is expected to triple over a five-year period. Nigeria, one of several African countries rich in lithium, announced last month that Chinese company Mingjin Mineral Separation Limited has broken ground to develop the country's first lithium processing plant. And here's another tidbit here. The decision to grant bid to the Chinese company came just months after Nigerian Minister of Mines and Steel Development Olamilikan Adegabite said he had turned down a bid from Tesla in August 2022. And one more on the diplomatic onslaught here. Vice President Kamala Harris to visit Africa as part of latest U.S. outreach. This is the Associated Press via 
PBS. Vice President Kamala Harris will spend a week in Africa at the end of March as the United States deepens its outreach to the continent amid global competition, notably with China. Quote, the trip will strengthen the United States partnerships throughout Africa and advance our shared efforts on security and economic prosperity, said a statement from the VP's spokesperson, Kirsten Allen. Harris's plan follows visits by First Lady Jill Biden and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is going this week, and President Joe Biden is expected to travel to Africa later this year. Sounds like it's front and center here for the U.S. However, Harris will be closely watched as the first black vice president in U.S. history and the first woman to hold the position. She plans to be in Ghana from March 26th to 29th, then in Tanzania from March 29th to March 31st. Her final stop is in Zambia on March 31st to April 1st. So, again, setting the table here. Now, on to medals here. Glencore set to lose crown as top cobalt miner to CMOC, which is a Chinese miner, as far as I understand here. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. A Chinese miner is set to overtake Glencore as the world's top cobalt producer this year as the rush for critical green energy metals intensifies. The challenger to Glencore's dominant position is CMOC Group, which first became a major player in the cobalt market when it acquired the Tenke Fungurum mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2016. The company aims to double production this year as it brings another massive Congolese mine online in the second quarter that will propel it past Glencore, company filings show. CMOC has had a turbulent year in Congo with a dispute over royalty payments halting exports from the Tenke mine since July. It's kept the operation running, stockpiling copper and cobalt, and CMOC executives told investors on Monday that they're confident of resolving the issue by the end of March, according to an emailed account of the call from Citigroup. Congo's finance minister, Nicholas Kazadi, also said he's hopeful a deal will be agreed, quote, very soon, end quote. In comments made at the Financial Times Commodities Global Summit in Switzerland, a resolution could remove a key source of uncertainty in the cobalt market where the fate of the stockpiled metal is weighing on the outlook. After spiking last year on the back of booming electric vehicle sales, cobalt prices have crashed in recent months on a combination of slowing demand from the consumer electronics sector, rising output in Indonesia, and worries over a surge in exports from Congo. And here, just scrolling down, is again, we're putting the pieces of the puzzle together here. While prices have plunged, the race to secure critical green energy raw materials has put cobalt in the political spotlight. In December, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Congo and Zambia to explore ways to support their joint plan to develop an electric vehicle value chain. So these stories that we're reading about Kamala Harris and Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen and the two other people from the administration, they don't really mention that they're out making deals, but one must imagine this is coming up. Otherwise, are they simply there to help get people on side for UN resolutions? Or is this about resources? So this is why we are giving you all this background on all these trips and all this attention for little paragraphs like that. Anthony Blinken signed an MOU with the Congo and Zambia to explore ways to support their joint plan to develop an electric vehicle value chain in December. Continuing on, J.P. Morgan owned the LME nickel, quote-unquote, that was actually bags of stones. This was kind of a shocking story 
when it first came out. And there's a whole other story of Australian gold going to the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which was also which was also supposed to be uh, not sure if it was stones or what. But anyways, so quite a few of these stories going around right now. Bloomberg News via mining.com. JP Morgan Chase owned the London Metal Exchange nickel contracts that turned out to be backed by bags of stones rather than metal, according to people familiar with the matter. The LME last week announced it had cancelled nine nickel contracts worth about $1.3 million after discovering irregularities at a certain warehouse which Bloomberg has reported was owned by Access World. The news has been met with shock in the metals world because LME contracts are generally viewed as beyond question. JP Morgan was the owner of the nine invalidated contracts, according to people familiar with the matter. The bank registered the bags of material as being deliverable against LME contracts in early 2022, said the people, who asked not to be identified discussing private information. There's no suggestion that JP Morgan did anything wrong. The material was already inside Access World's Rotterdam warehouse when the bank bought it several years ago, according to one of the people. Still, its central role in another nickel crisis will be a headache for the bank. J.P. Morgan's commodity business has been under scrutiny since last year's nickel short squeeze on the LME, where it played a key part as the largest counterparty to Chinese tycoon Zhang Guangda's short position. So, Access World also said, quote, they suspect it's, quote, an isolated case and specific to one warehouse in Rotterdam, end quote. So, pretty interesting... And continuing on, Philippine miners not keen on Indonesia Nickel Alliance plan. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A plan by top nickel miner Indonesia to create an OPEC-like group to coordinate supply would not benefit the Philippines, the number two producer, according to an industry group. The Philippines mined a tenth of the in-demand metal that's used in electric vehicle batteries last year, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, and mainly exports nickel ore to China. That's well behind Indonesia, which accounted for almost half of global output and floated the idea of a producer alliance late last year. Well, you wonder if the Philippines doesn't want to upset its main customer, China. Quote, if prices of raw materials go up, then they will feed into prices of finished products, which we import, and it will hurt us. End quote. Dante Bravo, president of the Philippine Nickel Industry Association, said in an interview, I'm not a believer in a controlled market. Indonesian Investment Minister Balil Lahadelia said last month that he plans to travel to major nickel producers including Australia, Brazil and the Philippines to promote the alliance. He may face an uphill battle though given that a major mining association in Australia and Canada's trade minister have also said they're not keen on the idea. The other main miners of the metal are a diverse bunch including Russia, New Caledonia and China. So they're sticking with this. They're not really backing off this nickel OPEC plan. Indonesia's nickel plan is part of President Joko Widodo's goal of adding more value domestically and becoming a key part of the battery supply chain. The country, along with Australia, also has the largest reserves of the metal, with Brazil not far behind. Prices for nickel, which is also used to make stainless steel, have risen by about two-thirds so far this decade as EV demand grows. So you look at the nickel output, and there's a chart here, a bar chart, and Indonesia far exceeds the second place Philippines by a factor of maybe seven. So in, you can see why Indonesia is particularly interested in this. And finally, Jakarta's ban on exports of metal ores in 2020 
boosted the value of its nickel shipments to $30 billion from $3 billion in two years as Chinese companies built refineries and smelters there. The Philippines is considering following in Indonesia's footsteps by taxing nickel ore exports to lure investment in processing plants. However, the Philippines' nickel is of lower quality than Indonesia's. Remember the interview we did with Anthony Malowski? And it has far smaller reserves, meaning it would be more difficult to attract funds, Bravo said on Monday. The country should instead focus on enhancing cooperation between its mainly small-scale miners to set up processing facilities and expanding the areas where companies are allowed to explore, he said. And continuing on, another massive story here with automakers buying into mines. Volkswagen to invest in mines and bid to become global battery supplier. This is Reuters via Mining.com. Volkswagen plans to invest in mines to bring down the cost of battery cells, meet half of its own demand, and sell to third-party customers, the carmaker's board member in charge of technology said. Its strategy aligns with a wider trend of carmakers seeking greater control over parts of the supply chain traditionally left to third parties, from energy generation to raw material sourcing, as they compete for scarce resources they urgently need to meet electrification targets. Europe's biggest car maker wants its battery unit, PowerCo, to become a global battery supplier, as well as meet half its own demand with plants mostly in Europe and North America, Thomas Schmall told Reuters in an interview. PowerCo will start by delivering cells to Ford for the 1.2 million vehicles the U.S. car maker is building in Europe on Volkswagen's electric MEB platform, he said. The bottleneck for raw materials is mining capacity. That's why we need to invest in mines directly. So it sounds like raw materials are the bottleneck. In other words, there's not enough at a decent cost available. The car maker was partnering on supply deals with mining companies in Canada, where it will build the first North American battery plant. And finally, Schmal said, quote, in the future, there will be a select number of battery standards. Through our large volume and third-party sales business, we want to be one of those standards. So interesting. And continuing on, gold price backs off after surpassing $2,000, nearing record high. And this is a staff writer at mining.com. Gold prices backed off from the key $2,000 level on Monday as investors assess the health of the global banking sector even as increasing bets of a Federal Reserve rate pause kept bullion near a one-year peak. Earlier, spot gold climbed 1.6% to its highest since March 2022 at $2,009.59 per ounce, just short of a record set during the onset of the pandemic. By noon Eastern, it reversed to a 0.6% loss at $1,977.42 per ounce. And we have a quote from independent analyst Ron Norman, who told Reuters, quote, Gold's volatility reflects that the market is digesting the recent shotgun wedding between Credit Suisse and UBS and the possible contagion, connecting it directly with the banking crisis there. Goldman Sachs expects commodities supercycle. This is also Reuters via mining.com. And Jeff Curry is back on the scene. Goldman Sachs expects a commodity supercycle driven by China and the capital flight from energy markets and investment this month after concerns triggered by the banking sector, U.S. Bank's head of commodities said. So interesting. So all these stories, again, it feels like the news is turning into one huge story with, again, resources playing a critical role in this narrative. Quote, as losses mounted, it spilled into commodities. And quote, Jeff Curry, global head of commodities for Goldman Sachs, told the Financial Times Commodities Global Summit on Tuesday. He continues, quote, historically, 
when you have this kind of scarring event, it takes months to get capital back. We will still get a deficit by June, and it will drive oil prices higher, end quote. Oil prices tanked to 15-month lows as a crisis at Switzerland's second biggest bank, Credit Suisse, which followed the collapse of two U.S. lenders, led to a takeover by bigger Swiss rival UBS. Curry emphasized the hit was to the supply side rather than demand, and he remains very bullish on copper. Quote, the deposits have already left. Cash is going into money markets, not into the banks. On copper, the forward outlook is extraordinarily positive. We'll be at the lowest observable inventories that have ever been recorded at 125,000 tons. We have peak supply occurring in 2024. Near term, we put the copper price at $10,500 a ton. And longer term, our price target is $15,000 a ton. End quote. His remarks echoed those of major copper trader Trafigura, who said the price could top $12,000. Copper hit a record $10,845 in March 2022. Curry added that concerns about the banking sector were centered around U.S. regional banks, while Europe was relatively safe from contagion. Well, that was done March 21st, so that is current. And finally, Trefigura sees fresh copper price records within a year, so referring to that other story, and this is Reuters via Mining.com. The co-head of Metals and Minerals at the World's Biggest Copper Trader said on Monday that copper price could hit a new record high within the next 12 months, owing to very tight stocks even above $12,000 a ton. I would highlight copper as the most critical metal globally given the shortage in the market. We only had three and a half days of copper stock equivalent at the end of last year, Trafigura's Costas Bintas told the FT Commodities Global Summit. Well, I was asking in an earlier interview, what happens when your copper runs out? And I guess, as we were saying, you know, I guess the price just goes up and more comes in, in theory, right? Uh, and finally, our trip around the world wraps up. Peru expects 74 mining projects to become operative in 2023. This is a staff writer at mining.com. So Peruvian Minister of Energy and Mines announced that 2023 will see the development of 74 mining projects across 17 departments for a total investment of $596 million. And we have a quote from the ministry who said in a media statement, quote, exploration is fundamental for the development of the mining industry. It constitutes the first step of Peru's most important activity as it allows the discovery of new deposits as well as the extension of the life of operating mines, all of which generates resources for the benefit of the country, end quote. So Peru is investing. And a couple of headlines here just on deep sea mining. China to step up deep sea mining efforts. This is Frick Ells via mining.com. China Daily reports that the country will make renewed efforts to join the race to mine the deep sea for critical minerals and calling it a, quote, a new frontier for international competition. And Ye Kong of Wuxi-based China Ship Scientific Research Center, a subsidiary of the China State Shipbuilding Corporation, said mining the metals found in nodules on the seafloor, mainly nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese, will, quote, help us reduce the heavy reliance on foreign suppliers. So China is getting into deep-sea mining, where Canada is facing pressure to ban deep-sea mining. And this is also mining.com. Canada is facing mounting pressure to declare a moratorium on deep-sea mining exploration and extraction. As the country hosts an international marine conservation summit starting Friday in Vancouver, leading to the 5th International Marine Protected Area Congress, international scientists and environmental organizations have called on Ottawa to ban the activity. You know, I remember 
interviewing the CEO of Deep Green. I don't know if Deep Green still exists in that form, but it sounded like a pretty conservative mining method. Like you simply pick these nodules up off the seafloor. It sounded like, I mean, it sounds like, you know, putting a net through the water for fishing would be far more damaging. So yeah, it just makes you wonder. So while the West is all scaling back, you know, Google and BMW, Renault, Volkswagen, and Volvo have pledged not to use deep sea metals for the time being. And 704 marine scientists and policy experts from 44 countries have endorsed a petition advocating a pause in seabed mining. So it continues to be interesting here. And finally, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame issues call for 2024 nominations, bringing it all back home here. And if you want to nominate someone, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has issued its 2024 call for nominations. They are searching for outstanding individuals for consideration by the board for induction into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And we have a quote from Janice Zink, CMHF chair, who said, quote, Canada's mining industry is at the forefront of the world's energy transition in Canada is well positioned to lead the supply of future-facing minerals and metals. This generational opportunity will capitalize on our industry's past successes. Canadian Mining Hall of Fame celebrates the leadership that has built the mining sector into what it is today through current members and future inductees. Nominations must be submitted through Canadian Mining Hall of Fame member organizations or associate member organizations, including the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy and Petroleum, the Mining Association of Canada, the Northern Miner, and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. If you want a link, simply go to Canadian Mining Hall of Fame Issues Call for 2024 nominations on the northernminer.com website. I hope you enjoyed this trip around the world where really geopolitics and natural resources link, and it seems that they particularly meet in the continent of Africa, which I think is going to take more and more of our attention as we move forward here. Thank you for joining me. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next time, take care.